You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. The world of finance is filled with adventures. It's full of stories, and those stories contain valuable lessons. But it's also full of characters. Joining me today is one of the biggest characters in the investment world. This week on Adventures in Finance, Hugh Hendry. If there is a crisis of of kind of epic proportions, I will hold the capital markets to blame and not the Fed. I think the the Fed and and other central banks will be shown to be blameless. I'm always a bit of a miserable character, so there are times when you have to look yourself in the eye and I say, well, you know, I got this far. I have to say to you that my concern is that the global macro model is broken. The question would be, so what's in Jimmy's, what's in Jimmy's trouser pocket today? You you can tack that on to the end. In what was, even by Hugh's uh, extraordinary standards, uh, an intimate and very candid interview on his market views, he also talked us through his journey in 2008, some pivotal moments in his life, and we found out what music, books and technology he would take with him on a space rocket to Mars. Today is September 14th, 2017, and this is episode 33 of Adventures in Finance. To my right is, as always, my... James, does this say trusty or trusted producer? I can't read it. It does say trusty. Trusty. My trusty producer, James. Mate, how are you? Yeah, doing very well. Lovely. How are you? Beautiful week in paradise for you? Yeah, yeah. All going uh, swimmingly. I never know quite what you get up to in this little cave of yours with all your sliders and buttons and bells and bows and stuff. What does go on in here? It, it just all helps to make it look like I'm working really hard. Okay. I guess if you have equipment around you that no one else understands, it just, it just elevates you. Exactly. It's like it's like pilots, you know. They don't need it all there because they can just push a button that says autopilot. The big red button, yeah. Yeah, but, you know. So what does this big red button do? You don't want to know. Fine, fair enough. Okay, now, um, whether you listened to the podcast last week or you dig it out this week and you enjoy the conversation with Carl, then uh, you'll love his new interview uh, on Real Vision Television where he sat down with Raoul and shared what he thought is the best trade in the world right now. Now, I've got a URL for that if you haven't uh, seen it yet, uh, but it's a bit complicated, so... Bear with me, you need to go to rvtv.io forward slash Kyle Bass interview, uh, all lowercase. Now, we couldn't find a better uh, um, URL than that, James, no? Uh, I did my best. All right, well, it'll have to be rvtv.io forward slash Kyle Bass interview. Now, without further ado, let's get into our guest this week. Hugh Hendry is the founding partner of Eclectica Asset Management. He is one of the biggest characters in the world of finance today. He's outspoken, he's candid, he's forthright. Uh, and he's a hell of a lot of fun. So let's welcome Hugh onto the show. Hugh, welcome. I am—I can't even tell you how delighted I am that you and I finally get the chance to uh, to chat. So thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Oh, the honour is all mine. 
Well, I, I suspect I'm going to ask you that question again in an hour, and then I'll probably cut you off before you give the answer. But uh, <laughs> now, the, the first thing I, I really want to chat to you before we get into this is, is uh, what's become known in Real Vision as Black Knight Gate. Now, um, you, know, you, you, you sat and chatted with Raoul recently and, uh, and po pointed me out as being the Black Knight, talking about yeah. uh, having scratches, which I found, I have to say, I found absolutely hilarious. And I was deluged by people saying, well, Henry's got no right to say that. What the hell? It's, it was amazing how people leapt to my defence. And all of them I said, are you kidding? I said, being called the Black Knight by Hugh Henry is one of the highlights of my entire career. So, <laughs> so, so A, thank you for that. That was, uh, that was great. Um, but I, you, you, you and I then chatted on email about this, and, and you, you said that you might even at some point have to agree with me, which, uh, which took me by surprise. First of all, let, let's, get the, let's get the Black Knight thing out of the way first. Mm. And, and why don't you tell people, in your own words, I had to put words in your mouth, why I'm the Black Knight? Um, because you're so wonderful. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you're, and it manifests itself in the, the wonderful passion that you bring. And you have this great format because um, passion resonates Passion is this, in, it's intangible and yet it's with you in the room. When I go back to my, my time at university, it wasn't necessarily the, the wise professor taking the lecture. It was the kind of young up and coming lecturer that just really wanted to impress upon you, you know, what was so fascinating, what was happening. And, and you have that, but you also have these uh, homicidal tendencies, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, seem to come you know, I mean, I, I know you've had a lot of pushback, you know, oh, bloody real vision, you know, you're all so damn bearish and <laughs> it's a broken record. And, you know, and, and I'm sure they're just talking about you, Grant. Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> and, and the thing is, I, I shared a lot of um, those, I'm sounding, I don't mean to sound trite, but those those sound bites, if you will, those thought bubbles, um, they were pretty much my motivation for starting the hedge fund. Um, the 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 hedge fund at the end of this this month will have recorded 15 years so we're going back into ancient history but um, I was actually seeking uh, a format with the widest powers possible so that I could confront the next oncoming wave that just seems so near at hand and I was very passionate about gold and and how um, if it gained renewed vigor it would call into question the legitimacy of many things from 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 politics to the valuation and our thoughts on different parts of the world um, and I don't know if I've got I've moved from being a, a naive I don't know if I've moved from being that sort of impish lecturer if you will trying to impress me on his knowledge to being that sort of old sad <laughs> professor that comes in now and bores you but I just find gold just doesn't charge me the way it did previously but uh, and so I'm always captivated when you come on and, and you know it's like hey look hey 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 this thing we've got problems and um, there's a there's there's a catastrophe at the end of your tongue um, it would seem and when I look at the world today you know my, my I, I've stopped using words such as bullish they can destroy uh, yeah. a macro franchise as I understand but I'm using these words uh, other words benign benevolent mm -hmm. as I try to kind of sketch out um, a world which was subject to great trauma and is recovering 
um, and healing, if you will. And so I always, um, I kind of want to put to bed some of those chapters, whereas I think you believe that it would make a great um, sequel uh, as a movie or as a book. Well, yeah, it's, it's really funny that this, this, this idea of changing your mind and, and allowing, you know, when the circumstances change, I change my opinions, what do you do, sir, or whatever the quote, I've just bastardized is. But, you know, you... I, the thing I love about you is your willingness and your ability to change your mind. And you, you take a very, very forceful stance when you, when, you, when you get your ducks in a row and you think you're right. You, you're very forceful about it, which is great. You have the courage of your convictions. But you're not afraid to change. And I've been, I've been really interested as I've gone through this real vision process and through writing things that make a home, how people just denigrate that, that ability people have to change their mind, which is arguably the most important thing to have in this business. And yet when you come out, as you've done and gone from you know, bearish to bullish, people give you a hard time over it. And I, and I, I really struggle to understand that. Yeah, well, um, I, I'm certainly not going to blame or harangue others. I mean, I, I, one of the instances you refer to is my what's now known as my infamous letter of, I think, uh, yes. December or November 2013, November, um, where I kind of used a, a, a phraseology from the US program, The Entourage, mm-hmm. um, where there was a sad old character who made these fantastic claims. And he would say, what if I was to tell you, you know, this movie is going to make $400 million, <laughs> you're going to win four Oscars, and it's only going to cost you $40 million to produce. Is that something you'd be interested <laughs> in? <you know? laughs> Uh, and, and I kind of borrowed from that to say, what if I was to tell you I become interested in equities? Is that something you'd be interested <laughs> in? And I can tell you that very definitely the answer was not. Um, <laughs> and and I get that um, the uh, there's an, um, a, a considerable risk uh, and a very large risk which resides within the equity portfolios, which are standard and, and a necessity in terms of wealth creation. And so they reside in, in all of our personal portfolios. Um, but they're expensive and they've been subject to, to great shocks and devastation. Uh, and therefore, um, the point may be noted, if you will, but in terms of uh, a business franchise, which is Global Macro and which is really um, an insurance platform, um, it really has uh, very little place and indeed, that is one of the factors, one of the contributory factors, uh, the fact that increasingly um, the, the lines of deviation or the, the, the lines of permitted activity yeah. uh, for a macro fund are, are just growing narrower and narrower. Um, and therefore, we are excluding uh, opportunities. And so, yeah, I, I'm saying to you, you know, um, give a thought to these poor old <laughs> macro investors. Yes, yeah, like we are really um, give a thought to these poor folk in the Caribbean. However, um, when you berate them for these very miserable um, and essentially flat like returns, mm-hmm. bear in mind what they're not allowed to do when you contrast and compare that with your performance. But then on this notion of, you know, being able, and I think the quote's attributable to um, someone like Hemingway or whatever, um, um, which is the ability to capture either two con- uh, contrasting, totally contrasting thoughts and kind of give them equal curry, if you will, yep. equal favour at the same time. Um, and then I have to say that just uh, my finishing school, the the uh, the immensely engaging and interesting years that I spent under the tutelage of Chris Benodi mm-hmm. um, from 
1999 to 2005. Uh, I mean, I gained just so much um, emotional intelligence from watching such a um, a complex and, and incredibly over-the-top personality. Um, and he told me things that no one would tell you. You know, he, he would, we would have lunch and he would say, you know, it's it's all about misbehaving. I've got to teach you to right. misbehave, you right. know, um, I, because it's only with misbehavior that you can feed, you know, the the energy for, for, for being curious. How does the world work? You know, um, we need these non-conforming people. I mean, I, I recall that when he reached out and had to do some form of due diligence uh, before deciding upon hiring me, um, my previous uh, or one but the previous um, uh, employer had said, oh, my God, he's a troublemaker. And he's <laughs> like, perfect. That's, I need troublemakers. And, you know, that, that's, that's my role. And, uh, but just watching him at, up, up close and personal, uh, his ability um, to come in the next morning and completely reject um, his thought process from the day before. I, I, I didn't find it confusing. I just find it admirable. And, and here we are today. Here we are in, um, in September. We are in September, I believe. Um, and, you know, and, and I, I don't know if we'll mention it later, but I, I, I think Mark Hart deserves yeah. immense Absolutely. credit for again showing that that flexibility i had a view and if we start throwing out these comments you know he, he essentially canes you know the facts have changed um you know and 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 i'm willing to to to, to change and, and accept my feelings and actually now i now the world has gone gone from being very small in terms of investment opportunities to being very large again so i i commend that utterly i think it's fantastic yeah um, I, I i couldn't agree more i mean you, you bring up crispin uh and and he's another character that that I kind of alongside you I, I find both of you fascinating because you're both incredibly gifted fund managers who've been through really hard periods. And what I I just don't understand is this idea that percolates that oh um, suddenly overnight Crispin became an idiot or Hugh became an idiot. You know, it's just markets are markets. They do what they do, and sometimes you're on the right side of it, and sometimes you're on the wrong side of it. It's it's the quality of the thought processes, the quality, the intellect behind the decisions that get made. You, you know, I remember reading Crispin, uh, Crispin talking about um, saying that everybody needs three bear markets. You need to go through three bear markets. You know, the first one wipes you out. The second one, you kind of just about survive. And then the third one, you can finally take it by the scruff of the neck, I think was the phrase he used, and, and mm-hmm. really enjoy it. And I think that's exactly right. But but the the willingness that, that watchers and observers have to write someone off and, and say, oh, it's all about the performance. And I, and I understand that in a way it is, but, but smart people don't get dumb overnight. And over the long term, you just want to invest with smart people. Yeah. Uh, well, so, um, I mean, forgive me, I'm not going to repeat myself somewhat from the you know, interviews with Raul, but um, this, the distinguishing feature is longevity. Yeah. So, um, uh, and I certainly accept that many, many people would say, I've just been an idiot for a very, very long time. <laughs> but um, longevity is, to my mind, one of these um, distinct, distinguishable features um, that you can use to to separate managers when you're making a review of um, who is best placed to look after your precious resources. Um, and and it comes to the you know and and it, it harks back. I think this was perhaps in the the Taleb, the, the first book, the Black Swan book, um, with, uh, with the emergence of insurance in uh, Renaissance Italy. 
that um, a, twi- a, a ripping, muscular, fit, bounding 21-year-old adult male really uh, was very poorly placed to receive insurance, whereas the the elderly senator statesman sort of with a walking cane and kind of <laughs> with difficulty walking the stairs was a sure bet. And he was a sure bet because life was tough back then. And whatever set of genes he'd been bestowed with had served him well. He was a good bet. And so he'd, he, you know, with longevity, he had proven himself. Um, and so that's my if you will, that's that. When I look at myself in the mirror, when I've had these awful um, performance drawdowns, and um, I'm coming off one now, we've had a torrid summer. I mean, I've, nothing obvious has has changed, but my wrist book has picked up a very, very strong correlation to the the maelstrom, which is uh, President Trump, and of course everything emanating from the um, the Korean Peninsula. Yeah. Something wasn't meant to be like that, and so then you know, and uh, I'm. I'm always a bit of a miserable character. So there are times when you have to look yourself in the eye and I say, well, you know, I got this far, if you will. Um, and and you get that far uh, largely from how you uh, react, uh, how you deal with mistakes. I mean, um, pre-trade analytics is is, is clearly a, a big issue. And, and the, the thing that's very much at the fore of what we do is, um, well, what if we're wrong? Um and the, the ones, the trades that make the book are the ones that we are satisfied that if we're right, we make a lot of money. But actually, if we're wrong, and there's a good, good chance that we're wrong, that the consequences, you know what, we can deal with the consequences. Yep. And so I think that's how I, I look upon that. Well, I want to get, we, I've, there's a, we've had over 100 questions for you, and we'll jump into the mailbag in a little while, because and there's several really smart questions about this sort of stuff. So we'll come back to that. But But what I want to do now, if I can, is is jump into uh, a couple of defining moments in your life. And, and um, I'd love to get one from you uh, from you know, your life and one from your career, just, just to try and get a sense of, of a pivotal moment where you, you had some tough decisions to make and then uh, perhaps you could relive them for us and, and talk us through the process and, and the outcome. On the 19th of October, uh, 2003, uh, my, my, my first child, uh, my son Cameron, was born. And... Uh, he had colic, you know, he just, you know, had irritable bowels, I think, like his father. <laughs> um, and it, it made him a, a, you know, a tough baby. He was crying all the time. And, and my wife was at home looking after this baby that just cried 24-7. And I had launched this hedge fund. And I had launched this hedge fund very much um, filled, filled up with gold and that was a tough time. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we had Gordon Brown selling gold, etc., cetera, um, for the U, uh, UK Treasury. And gold didn't really ultimately uh, stop uh, falling until, I want to say, March, April of the following year, which six months is a heck of a long time in, in, in new hedge fund dog yes. life. Yes. <laughs> um, and so I was just miserable, miserable, miserable. Um, I could see my future disappearing before my, my very eyes. And I'd come home and I'd have this crying baby. I'd have this mad wife who was <laughs> in tears. And then I'd be, I mean, it was just grip cry sessions. And uh, I think just letting it rip and letting just letting those tears flow was certainly uh, cathartic. Um, so that's kind of whatever is funny. But here we are 15 years later. And, and I would yeah, I don't wish to be uh, overly dramatic, but um, if I'm candid, 
I have to say to you that my concern is that the global macro model, I'm beginning to think that it's broken. Um, global macro model was essentially, um, or essentially it was contextual, you know, for the longest time um, you enjoyed really what were quite high and positive real yields from investing in sovereign government bonds, especially yeah. in America. And, and they were stubbornly high because we all had this great fear that inflation was about to return. And it just meant that that uh, whilst the returns nominal versus other securities were not great, the kind of risk-adjusted profile was such that you could leverage those fixed income positions and suddenly you had something really, mm -hmm. really turbocharged. And that would pay for what is an expensive facility. Running a hedge fund is expensive and, and sadly it's only got tougher and tougher. Nigh on impossible, I would say, actually. Um, and, and, but you could cover those costs and then periodically... Uh, you, you're charged with taking on largely negative convex bets on, on other risk assets. So uh, 2008 comes around and, and you get an extraordinary return on top of this golden bounty of these fixed income returns. And so it made, it made us all, made uh, others perhaps more than me, but it made, it made them true global superstars. Um, and the sector saw an immense allocation of, of client capital. And as you know, since 2012, um, and really with the successful um, implementation of quantitative easing, um, those real returns have only gone one way. They've fallen. Uh, today, U.S. 10-year real yields are 0.3%. And even with leverage, and I, I would advise leveraging what now is an expensive asset class, but even with leverage, it's hard for those gross returns to cover the management of um, a hedge fund and the regulatory cost, and indeed, you know, the the periodic convex uh, bearish bets. So, um, I think we're at a juncture. I think we're going to lose more and more of these vehicles. And the paradox and the irony, one of my favourite sort of areas, is that. And we'll come back to this, you know, the, my berating of your Black Knight tendencies. <laughs> um, I don't see a crisis um, immediately uh, in terms of, I don't know, 18 to 24 months. But I'm pretty sure that when we do exhibit and feel the full brunt of a crisis, the great shock is that the negative correlation, the diversification offered by U.S. Treasuries um, is just not going to be there. That um, whilst this the the if you will short intermediate time frame to my mind, I, I know this is not an exercise in pontificating about the future, but I, I think we're kind of the passage is quite secure and safe-ish, if you will. Um, but I've never known a time where client portfolios or wealth portfolios are sitting there so unprotected. Uh, from whatever may may happen, whatever may be beyond my uh, ability to comprehend. So this is a, this is a, a an immensely difficult time. It's an immensely difficult time for me. You know, I'm I'm not just speaking um, generically. Uh, I I now invest with fear. You know, I mean, I always invested with fear. I, I you know, um, a, a former. Uh, investment partner of mine uh, very kindly was submitting uh, a client ref uh, reference or referral and his point was the thing that makes me a great investor I mean his words not mine was that um, I just have a low um, self-esteem self and I'm, I'm really not that confident 
are not that confident about anyone's ability to predict the future. And if you will, it's that lack of confidence, again, which goes back, if I, if I go back and repeat myself, which has served me well because I've always been able to deal with mistakes. I've never had those mistakes be, be so great. Um, and so, again, we have to push off my kind of tendency to be morose, but it just, it, you know, um, investing with that, I just don't know what happens in the future. This is my best stab at it. And what if I lose another client? Can I pay my bills? It's mm. I, I wouldn't wish anyone today. And indeed, it's impossible, I'd say, now for anyone to come through um, um, from a small amount of money and, and really make the big time. And and I lament that. I lament that. That's sad. And and, and I, f- I fear maybe in two years' time, people might, you know, if some unknown event does cause some uh, some harm i i think people were saying but where were the hedge funds right you fired them you know yeah it's so true it's funny people people outside who would look at you i I think the ability you have to stand there and and own your mistakes and talk about them as you do you're 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 incredibly open communicator you're happy to talk about stuff that that a lot of people to your point ego would preclude them from having those conversations but people people's perception of you is you're so confident, you know, you have this big ego, you're, 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 you're just, you have complete faith in everything you do. And, and to hear you talk about this, this, this fear when you invest, which I think everybody has to have, I think you're crazy if you don't, if you don't, if you're not terrified every time you pull the trigger. Mm. It's, it's, it's very subtle, but it's so at odds with, I think, the, the impression people have of you from, from, that, from that confidence that you, you just been in talking about your own, your own shortcomings. Yeah, well, I mean, um, again, I'm I'm my own worst enemy. I mean, the the television work. I mean, the, uh, your format's fantastic because it's it's long, it's considered. Um, but you know, back in the day, I used to do a lot of um, live television or whatever. You know, CNBC and then those BBC shows with Newsnight, etc. And the impossible brevity of time in terms of you have to kind of condense yeah. all of what we've been talking into like 30 seconds yeah um and so yeah you your delivery has to be punchy and, and it fans that notion that you're just an arrogant so-and-so but it just couldn't be further uh, from the truth yeah it's, it's it is it's 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 this 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 idea of I, I picture all these hedge fund managers as sort of retired superheroes with you're sitting in, in their little apartments with their capes a bit tattered hanging up on the on the hook and then at some point we're going to have a crisis that the signal's going to go up and it's, you know, where are all the hedge fund managers? Where are they? We need them now. Now, too late. Yeah, too late, exactly. So, so let's, 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 uh, let's get back to an, another uh, defining moment, perhaps um, yeah, in your career. You've, 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 we've done the hedge fund. You, 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 you were, everybody was crying. Your wife was at home with the baby. They were both crying. You were at the office crying over gold. Uh, what about further down the track? Perhaps, perhaps something around 2008 because... Obviously, that's you had you had some stellar returns in, in two thousand eight. Um, did that did that bring you to any kind of fork in the road? Um, it, it seems there's a fork every year. Uh, two thousand and eight <laughs> was a was a remarkable journey. Um, the um, you we'd been sensing it for for at least two years prior, which is a long time and arguably too long. Um, I mentioned to Raul that you know the the big short, you know, like we knew all the characters 
um, because yes. you know we essentially we're going to do that trade, but um, um, now is kind of passe. But back then, the, the notion of uh, the valuation risks and the integrity of an NEV uh, mark for like we have a two two weekly uh, trading uh, NEV <laughs> um, made it impossible for us to actually um, have the powers that be sign off on it. Um, and so it was uh, shortly thereafter we conceived the notion of uh, that the Fed and, and part of my my original kind of uh, uh, push in favour of gold was I was saying in 2003 um, the Fed's going to end up with zero overnight rates like the Bank of Japan um, and you you have to conceive of the world um, which enables them to have legit legitimacy to get to zero now, now we're accustomed to it. You know, now it's the new normal. Fifteen years ago, it was like really. But you, you must have sounded um, like a crazy person in two thousand three. Those must have sounded to a lot of people like the utterings of a crazy person. Grant, when have I not like <laughs> a crazy person? Okay, um, yeah, but you know, um, it was a more naive time. Um, we had different set of investors, um, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I uh, my franchise uh, had been um, small, funky successful families where the the proprietor you met the proprietor you met the risk taker and yeah. he and, and he had an understanding and an innate understanding of of what risk meant and and he could see people who were genuine um and they would get it so that yeah that was my franchise um so yeah so we're expecting these zero uh, rates and, and so my great insight for me the light bulb moment was that you need a deflationary crisis to have any chance of resuscitating gold. I'd, I'd gone off, you know, I'd, I'd taken my profits. I'd made 50% in the calendar year, 2003. Um, so tears ended and, you know, we had champagne flying, if you will. I had secured you know, my tenure or I had the opportunity to, to succeed. Um, but around about the end of 2005, 2006, I, I pulled back and I had this, my, this, this is, this is the opera, you know, this is the second part. I told you five years ago, rates were going to go to zero and you had to buy gold now. Now I'm telling you, everyone accepts that gold's going to 3,000 bucks. Right. But actually, this is all about threading the eye uh, the eye of the needle. Um, it's just going to be impossible for the majority because the only way gold gets to 3,000 bucks is the Fed has to go to zero on overnight rates. And the only way the Fed can get to zero is if we have this monumental deflationary bust. So if you look around the world, what could create the biggest deflationary bust ever if we have a synchronized uh, regional catastrophe in uh, the US housing market, then the whole thing gets blown off. Um, how do we play it? You know, we, we looked at the big short. Um, and then finally, we came into um, the, the twos 10, the, the curve steepener. And then we said, still can't tell you the date. And so we kind of Position it a little bit too clever. We did two ten, but two years, like in the future, and that was a. Um, we were right. The Fed went to zero yeah. every time it cut rates. However, two years out, the market was going ah. Yep. You know, these guys are crazy. This is going to create inflation. I'm going to push up two year rates. So I sat there with a book that we'd made. You know, we'd and how you learn. Or do you learn? I question if I if I have learned this. Um, but we made twenty five percent in the first two months of two thousand and eight, and I gave it all back. I had a fifteen percent drawdown. Now I was taking a lot more risk back then. Again, I was younger. Um, we had a fifteen percent drawdown when the uh, did they allow J P Morgan to to take over? Um, Stearns, yeah. Stearns, yeah. 
and you know we had you know we had this volatile flight path and so i found myself i guess i found myself um where are we uh, nine years ago um in, in september 2008 and i was down about 10 percent on the year having been up 25 and and been right uh, and being right, and I'm thinking, oh my god, and I'm going to have to come. Yeah, you know, maybe I should go to Hollywood. I don't know. I've got a face for made for radio, maybe radio. Um, and and at the same time, of course, remember, <laughs> I'd committed to making a television program. Um, I kind of wrote and produced a one-hour documentary for for Channel Four in the United Kingdom, and we made that. In, and I thought, well, why not? You know, I mean. Right busted anyway and i got kind of access all areas we filmed in the white house we filmed in new york we, i was walking down wall street saying i can see dead bodies everywhere you know <laughs> um, and, and i remember the stress the i remember the cameraman like had a seizure and we had to call the ambulance and he got stretched out just as the s&p was opening down i don't know 400 points <laughs> um so yeah that um and then and i still don't have a PL. Um, but you just know now that it's this that you know this I'm sitting on a volcano. You, I, I definitely had good vibrations, if you will. Uh, and then I, I have a, um, I get summoned to New York, and I've got a client that's got half of my fund. Gives me a redemption. Calls me an idiot. No and way. By this point, I by this point I'm zero. I you know, began to recover. That's the, the good vibrations yeah. from the volcano. We started you know, picking up. Um, you know because we these. Deep out of the money strikes, which suddenly were getting closer. And so you can imagine the convex sure. power was profound. And these guys think, you know, I've got guys down 30%. They're smarter than you. I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I'm flat. I mean, really? I mean, it's your money, you know. Um, and I was like, yeah, okay, well, monthly redemption, fine. Work it. And, of course, that was the month when it when it, when it it blew. And I was able to return their money. Up fifty percent, uh, uh, up fifty on the month, and up thirty-two on the year. So, uh, my life's never been without drama. Um, <laughs> I th- so I then I, I end a very successful campaign um, with uh, managing less than a hundred million dollars, and so that's the juncture, you know. And we went into this big kind of reflective uh, mode. You know, what have we got to do differently? Um, what I, what is the ambition? Um, and I got persuaded and I got greedy, if you will, with the notion of, hey, you know, if we could just, if we could just make you a bit less crazy or just not show all that craziness, um, you know, we could, we could really be managing a lot more money. And, um, um, and, and that was kind of true, you know, where you were managing within two or three years, we were managing $1.3 billion across, across our, our funds. Um, but it was coinciding with the time where I was, yeah, I was the dark knight. You know, the, the Fed is evil. You know, the, the Fed by not allowing, not purging and cleansing the system is just creating the environment where we will suffer again. We will, we will be the fools that tread once more into the dark valley. Um, and, and again, feeling constrained that I just had to be taking bearish bets meant that it was the best of times, but it felt like the, the worst of times. So, as I say, I mean, I, every year has been like that. So, so how did you, because I'm fascinated in how you, as the Dr. Strangelove, you know, how, you, how you learned to, to, uh, to love the Fed. Because you were very vociferous about, that was the way you felt about what they were doing, and, and very eloquent about it too. You know, what you laid out as what you thought your base case was going to be was, 
very well thought out, very well uh, stated. So how did you, you know, embrace the Fed and learn to love what they're doing, it, it, mm. albeit maybe reluctantly? Mm. Um, hesitantly, certainly, at first. Um, time. Two things. Yeah. Time. Um, uh, time in my own paranoia, you know, so I, I, I give myself uh, stop losses. And uh, you know, if, if I'm half as smart as I kind of try and conceive of myself, then I should be able to nail this thing. Uh, the shock of 2008 was it was, you know, it was getting dark outside. It was five yeah. to midnight before uh, just the convoluted nature of how it structured the trade just pushed it to the very last minute. Um, but this is, we're talking really the end of 2013, and, and I had been ruminating these kind of dark thoughts since the end of 2008. Um, and that was, my God, that was where I was well timed out, and I was really quite angry with myself that I had uh, persisted beyond the kind of time stop loss. I'd been capable of doing so because um, fixed income still offered lots of opportunities. Um, back in August 2009, one of the, personally, one of my high points was doing a, a formal uh, debate with uh, Neil, I have to call him Neil. He gets upset if I call him Niall. So Neil Ferguson, <laughs> right. the Harvard, Harvard economist, uh, in front of really, you just wouldn't believe the crowd. It was the gods of global macro all assembled for this kind of heads of state type hedge fund, macro hedge fund conference in London in August or September 2009. And you, we just had QE announced in, in March of that year. And the room was full you know, with inflationary bets from commodities yeah, to Chinese equities. Um, and so the, the topic under discussion is this house, you know, where does this house stand on 30-year treasuries? And uh, our esteemed economist was very much was charged with taking the responsibility for, you know, their sell. And it was coinciding with this Chimerica uh, book mm-hmm. launch. And so, you know, this was this wonderful relationship, but sadly all things come to an end. And uh, the divorce, you know, the Chinese would be selling the treasuries. And, and of course, quantitative easing was inflationary. So clearly you have to sell long-duration asset. Um I, I clearly was the other side. I, I've never, my, I remember my colleagues saying, why have you agreed to do this? <laughs> there is no upside. You're going up against it's pretty much the best speaker in the world when it comes to these matters. And it's not like you can like earn a performance fee. Why, why are you doing it? And again, it was kind of my, it's how I, that paranoia, I don't know. So, but what if I actually presented these crazy ideas against like, Neil Ferguson yeah. and got away with it. I mean, that's can you imagine? Kind of got it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, maybe I'd be right, you know. And um, so I had to get inside his head, and he didn't know who I was from Adam and Eve. Um, and of course, he came through with the obvious one at the beginning: Celtic Rangers, like right. boring. Um, but you know, he like he prides himself in being kind of like a upstart working class Glaswegian who's now this, you know, Professor Emeritus, whatever, at Harvard. Um, but he went to a private school. Nothing. I Believe me, I have nothing against that. Uh, but if you want to get under the guy's skin, <laughs> you kind of really knocked him 
for six on that one. And I say, hey, like, Goose School's got this, I can't even remember what it's in Latin. The school for, the motto for my school uh, today on the internet is, your kids are safe with us. Because <laughs> I, I was I, I was brought up in a place which no longer exists, Castle Milk, um, one of these kind of bangles, the French call them these suburbs, uh, these nasty kind of crime-ridden uh, suburbs. And it has the, the, that school, that area has the highest instance of child death from, you know, from malevolent means. Um, so you know, we can't, we, we, maybe we see things differently. And then just pressing the button of calling him Niall, his retort was, <laughs> The Nile is a river that runs through Egypt. I never forget that. I was like, yeah, but it's also your name in Scotland. That's what we call you. And just he got so mad. But anyway, I digress. Um, remarkably, would you believe um, I won that debate? And um, there were there was rich opportunities in uh, in receiving short uh, uh, overnight rates in the UK, and, and and then after we'd gone through the the folly of cliche and his folly of raising rates. Yeah. You know, there was just wonderful bounty to collect and receiving. So all of that fixed income PL had been sufficient for some double digit years and 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 could fan and carry this uh, this real lack of emotional intelligence with regard to berating the Fed. And so that and then finally uh, I guess the Lords of Finance, that amazing yes, book. Yes, superb book. Amazing, amazing book. I, I think I've read it twice. And um, and and really, one of the takeaways is uh, these masters of finance made made mistakes that it didn't have to be that way. And I think Bernanke, I clearly Bernanke understood and did admonish. I mean, he, he took responsibility. He he said, "I'm as the chairman of the Federal Reserve, I am sorry for the mistakes that we made." at the end of the 1920s, which resulted in the utter devastation of the working population and, and their wealth for, you know, for over a decade. So that's kind of how I was able to get on with it. So, so what do you think it is in the average investor's mind that, uh, you know, is it piety? But I, I don't know what makes people so virulently anti-central bankers and I throw myself in there anyone listening to this has listened to me understands that I I, I have not embraced uh, the light side I, you know I still I still believe that top was fine QE1 arguably fine but subsequent to that you know I, I, and I'm arguing the intentions rather than the outcomes the outcomes are there for all to see we, you know, we have we have elevated markets we've we've saved the system um, but but for now and and at what cost and at, at what what's the potential magnitude for the unwinding of the potential build up of natural forces that are countering what the central bankers are doing? Why do you think most investors seem to if they're on on I'll call it your side of the trade, I don't I don't mean that pejoratively, but people on that side are kind of holding their nose and saying, okay, and people on the other side are just so anti everything that's being done. Like, yeah, we should step out of the way, let the market do what it's got to do. Why are they so virulent about that, do you think? No, I, I, I'm kind of giggling. Um, you, your back sounded like the Black Knight. Yeah, I know, I know, absolutely. <laughs> so, Tis but a scratch. So, dear Black Knight, lie down on the sofa. Okay, let's, <laughs> let's, let's give you some counselling here. Um, the, we got damn uncomfortably close to utter devastation 
to the banks being closed. Um, I um, I have a I have a house. I am so lucky, um, and I have a house in the most beautiful part of the world. Um, I I live the dream. I have a house in St. Bart's, and St. Bart's has been has and the astonishing thing about St. Bart's in the Caribbean is it's unlike the rest of the Caribbean. St. Bart's, when you arrive, you're landing in Saint Tropez. You are in Europe. This is this is the real world. There's nothing imaginary about it. Um, banks, well-built structures, no debt from the local government, good infrastructure, everything. It's perfect. Perfect. And yet overnight it has been reduced to a scene reminiscent. I, I traveled through Mozambique on a on a mining uh, expedition uh, back in 2009. I've seen scenes which are reminiscent of the shocking scenes that I saw in Mozambique. And that is when I say we came devastatingly close. Mm-hmm. We came devastatingly close to the financial equivalent of all of that, to the equivalent of families enduring, um, of, of mass unemployment, of, of GDP falling 20, 25%, um, not in Greece, but in America, in the UK. And so when you tell me, but at what cost are they storing up? I'm saying, I don't care what cost. It doesn't come close to the deflationary spiral that we got so close to. And so I don't think they get enough credit. Now, what I want to turn to is I want to tell you that uh, the thing I'm now, you know, it's like, what if I was to tell you I was bearish (laughs) treasuries? Fixed income. Is that something you <laughs> something might be interested in? And I suspect actually uh, my client or potential client base would be because I think it's, it's well understood the, the vulnerability in the treasury market in terms of low returns and, and really the prospect that they won't diversify portfolios. But um, I want to say to you that if there is a crisis of, of kind of epic proportions, and I still don't think there will be um, – um, stretching out, you know, 10 or so years. Um, I think there'll be some unpleasantness with a different variety. But uh, but if I'm wrong, your black knight tendencies are, are fulfilled. Um, I will hold the capital markets to blame and not the Fed. I think that the Fed and, and other central banks are will be shown to be blameless in this. Um, I think what is fascinating about capital markets today is that you have had the absolute capitulation of the professional money management class uh, that having spent so many futile years berating the monetary policy for being too loose, they now have accepted it. They now believe it is correct. We're in a situation where, you tell me, Grant, where, where, where's, where are Fed overnight rates? Yeah, no, look, I, I take your point. Yeah. Exactly right. The Fed overnight rates are 1 or the 1.25. You think I yeah. know that. Um, look at this call, the 1%. The professional money management class is telling you that 1% Fed funds rates will uh, push the U.S. economy into recession. It's just preposterous. Um, you know, the, if, if I'd been more eloquent with Raul in our last um, debate, I would say, look, what you're forgetting is that recessions, they just don't come out of thin air, right? There is typically an event, you know, so, um, and it's typically, you know, you, you know, I'm on the other side of the Chinese story as well, but China as an objective risk threat to the system is immense, it's the top of the page. And it's yeah. the top of the page because you've had unabandoned credit expansion for many years, which you know, throws up the question of uh, misallocated 
resources and a vulnerability. And that vulnerability rests below the surface until monetary authorities feel the need to raise rates. And of course, that's what then sets off a domino process. In the absence of that, you don't really get recessions. You get just very long up cycles. And we're, I think, sitting here today, I don't, there's just not been a credit excess in the US, in any sort of significant component of the US economy, which could tip it over uh, with the advent of higher rates. Um, so I think we're at a point where um, markets in this kind of manic behavior of, I hate you, I love you, I hate you, I love you, and now it's just love. The market is conditioning the Fed to take risks. And it's, and it's taking risks. It's saying we, apl- we applaud and indeed we demand loose monetary policy. And it brings back, I'm just about to publish a, a commentary, but I am referencing uh, the labor market of 1964-65, which you know, may as well be, I may as well be Jane Austen. <laughs> and talk, you know, it's, it's just so far back. Um, but there have been three instances where we got to 4.5% uh, unemployment rate. Um, two of them were 2005, uh, and 1999-2000. And, and I dismiss them because they were, again, the, res- the result of an economy kind of living off the fumes of the credit excess of epic misallocation of resources, both in property and, and technology and telecom. Um, and so they were moments in time which were where any incipient inflation was going to be nipped in the bud and, and of course, severely uh, eliminated when those dominoes began to crash. So that takes me further and further back into time to this 1964-65. There, there was just, there was nothing to derail the economy. Um, and from 1965, wage inflation took off. And inflation went on a tear for 16 years. For 16 years, for at least 16 years, inflation was never below 2%. It took 15 years. It took 31 years to deal with it, if you will. Um, so I think actually one of the great um, uh, my my great fears is actually the um, bridling of the market's angst about inflation is actually going to create it's going to be one of the channels or mechanisms for allowing um, the tightness of the labour market um, because the tightness is going to continue because I don't see a domino there's just nothing to derail. And this is a Fed that's always that naturally wants to be cautious and behind the curve. And now they're being encouraged by the market to pursue that. And so this is an environment where I think in a, in a few years' time, um, the problem will be we just won't see inflation below two for a decade. Yeah, you know, it's it's it's. I, I, I listen to that, and it all makes perfect sense to me. I, you know, I, I would say that. Um, Generally, the things that tend to cause recessions are one interest rate hike too many, um, and and that's happened plenty of times yeah. that they've hiked us into recession. Generally, well, these guys are not going to do that. Yeah, well, yeah, I, that. I mean, look, maybe maybe they don't. Um, and and if you're right, and if wage inflation picks up and they are hiking and they're behind the whole time, that would be. I mean, talk about a Goldilocks scenario. Talk about sticking the perfect landing. That would be you know, unfeasible to me. But we that's see the not shock. to say it can't happen. Yeah, the shock, I think. The, the, the shock, and, and no one, I don't, I don't think, 
anyone is seeing this. I don't. I haven't seen this written down. The shock and where you're going is going to be that this economy will be able to take higher and higher levels of interest rates. Because if I'm right, right, we've, we're now all the world. We've we've got synchronized global growth. Okay, um, there are no landmines to kind of go off. Really, I I believe. Um, and if you get wage inflation, see wage inflation, the problem with quantitative easing was we gave all of this new liquidity to rich folk. Yeah, who don't no spend pro- it. Yeah, exactly. Who right. don't want to spend it. Yeah. Wage inflation is like the helicopter drop that Bernanke promised, but none of his successes dared to, to go to, to carry out because a wage uh, raise across the board is you're giving money to people who want to spend it. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get fractional banking reserves, creating money. And that's where you get the velocity and the the feed through into higher prices. Yeah. Look, you know, this is, I'm now sitting here wishing we could just take this offline for another three or four hours and debate this. But, uh, but if we start going down this track, we are going to be sitting here for three or four hours. So we we are going to have to move on, but you and I must sit down and talk about this because it's, it's fascinating stuff. Um, but what I want to get into is is the mailbag because we've had a ton of questions for you. So in, in like a couple of days, we had over 100. But the first one um, I'm going to give you is from Kyle, Kyle Bass, who was our guest last week. And here's the question he wanted to ask you. My question for him is is one I would ask myself. And it, and, and it, is, it is the following. How, how do you maintain positioning um, for extended periods of time uh, when uh, when the market deems you to be wrong and you're just waiting uh, to be vindicated, you know how how do you hang on uh, and and how do you explain it to someone like Grant and myself without uh, giving us uh, you know um, uh, a language we don't really understand, which I which I guess Scottish. How do you how do you <laughs> how do you speak English when you respond to a question like that? I'd really love to know. Ah, c'est un très bon question. Peut-être, oh, so perhaps not in French. Perhaps not in um, French. No, no, no. Let's stick with the uh, Scottish. Okay. Um, I think I think we've we've touched upon this. Um, so, um, with Kyle, of course, one has to address China. So uh, let's look at China. Um, we we just have a, a, a fantastically smart trade um, now. On its own, right? So my point is, I don't know if, if China will crash. I don't think anyone, I don't trust anyone that says they know it's going to crash. Um, I see my role as being an architect. If I keep with my analogy with this terrible hurricane that's been afflicting the Caribbean, my, my role is to build a house in the Caribbean um, that can withstand even a Category 5 uh, hurricane. Okay? And I, I have a limited budget, right? It's like I'm not building a house for some billionaire with, with you know, with those sensitivities. It has to be an affordable home. That's that's my role, really. Um, it, I am a financial architect trying to build uh, vessels strong enough to withstand great, great storms. Okay, um, so I, I, and I said to you that given the credit expansion, China should be an area. That you should, if you can find a means of a, a payoff uh, and a convex and explosive payoff, should that that unknown event actually take place, then that's worth consideration. Then it's all about the cost. Now, um, we are running a position which is essentially the differential between onshore and offshore 
Chinese interest rates, very short-term Chinese interest rates. Um, there, there is no differential. And over the summer, actually, onshore rates have been a little bit below their offshore, which is truly, truly weird. But mm-hmm. we're in a world now where it's conceivable that the, the, the Chinese kind of push on with this notion of being a reserve currency. But certainly that people feel confident owning their currency. We're kind of almost in the early days of it being a carry trade again, where you short the dollar and you buy the renminbi. And, and that's cost me money. It's been it's been stressful. But in terms of first principles, um, we our position size in 2014 um, cost us like like just the annual cost of the carry was 60 basis points. And, and that position made, I want to say, 15%. Don't hold me to these, but roughly, they won't be too mm-hmm. old. So I'm willing to lose 60 basis points on an event. I just don't know if it's going to happen, but I know if it does happen, my clients would really like to get a nice payoff from that. So I'm willing to forgo 60 basis points. Um, and, so, and indeed, today, I want to say the carry on that is, is almost zero. And actually... Um, you can make it positive carry because I think there's an argument that you should be receiving five-year Chinese onshore uh, swaps. But again, I digress. So it, uh, my succinct answer to that question in a language I think that we can all kind of um, understand is think of a macro fund as being uh, the architect of, uh, of a safe vessel. Um, I think, again, back to my morose comments about hedge funds or macro hedge funds, I, I really think if this sector has any future, we have to redesignate um, what it stands for. I, it, it, should, it should represent a loss center. Clients should be allocating capital on the basis that it should lose the money, except in the circumstances of a major kind of you know, two standard deviation type event. That's and it. you know, by its very definition, that means the sector should be managing perhaps less money. Yeah, no, absolutely right. Um, okay, so this next question changed the subject completely. You've actually answered a couple of questions that I had lined up about China, which is great. So now this one comes from a gentleman called Johnny Rico. Now I don't know if he's uh, that's his real name or he's a movie star, but um, his question is this: If you could have worked in any other field besides finance, what would it have been and why? Oh. Um, do you know, I was <laughs> I was in I spent the month of August in in uh, Los Angeles, and I was in a supermarket uh, opening a fridge door in the morning. There was no one in the supermarket in Malibu, and I turned around. This guy's got his head pressed to me, and he's like, "You're that guy from U two." <laughs> I was like, "No, I'm not." And he's like, "I can hear it in the accent." I was like, "No, that's a Scottish accent. He's Irish." Uh, and can I point out that he is, um, I think, 10 years older and about certainly about a good five inches shorter than me. Um, and he followed me around the supermarket. Um, and and but it made me, um, my wife now calls me Fono, the fake Bono. Um, <laughs> but I have, to, I have to say, you know, I do like being on a stage. <laughs> um, and, and, and again, when I think of, my career, uh, when I was at university, and this might touch upon some of your questions again, but I remember my favorite artist was a guy called Martin Stevenson. Martin Stevenson in the dainties. And he was from Newcastle. And he, he I, I thought the guy was a genius. I thought the, the wordsmanship was just astonishing and it was melodic and the, the stage presence. I, this guy is going to be huge. And um, 
And he wasn't. I'm sure you. I'm sure none of <laughs> anyone listening. Very few, maybe one percent, will recall "Boat to Bolivia" by Martin Stevenson. And I, I used to think to myself, how can you? How do you live with that? Like he clearly had talent, but it wasn't a commercial talent. And I don't know how. how you have to come to terms with that. And um, uh, it's just one of those. Sorry, just one of those thought bubbles that I, I sometimes contemplate. <laughs> okay. All right. We're going to get back to back to finance now, <laughs> away from Martin Stevenson and the what? Dane Tet? What they call the dainties? Dainties. The, the, the dainties. dainties. All right. I need yeah. to look those up because I'm sure as hell never heard of them. Um, <laughs> okay. So this question from Alex Land. Hugh, thanks for sharing many interesting thoughts throughout the years. What specific steps have you taken to maintain a positive mindset, considering the ups and downs of running a fund? Uh, brackets. I'm a CTA myself. There's a man um, looking for, for to get on your couch now. By the sound of things. Sure. Uh, not reading the comment bar or the vision. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I uh, if I could just say to some of the customers, you know, I'm not the competition, right? You know, I, you know, I'm not trying to beat you. You can beat me. That's fine. You know, it's, I'm, you know, I'm not saying I'm super smart. I'm better than you. I, I'm saying, like, cut me some slack. I. There's so little that I can do that meets the mandate of running right. this risk pro- profile. Um, I'm just here to kind of offer you, like, just to question. Just if, if you listen to me, do you? Some, if, if it works, you think, eh, I, I didn't think of that. You know, yeah. maybe I should think about it. Dismiss it, but just acknowledge it. That's that's my role. Um, so so that and. Um, I am fair. I mean, it's, I mean, you don't really know me, but I mean, I am true to character in that I am strange. Uh, now, it takes a lot of guts to be strange. Um, I'm idiosyncratic. Um, I don't follow convention. Um, I, I don't really like sitting in an office with folk. Um, I like listening. I like noise, listening to music. Um, I don't have buddies. <laughs> I could stop there. I don't have buddies. Uh, I don't have buddies at investment banks calling me. I don't have a, a fixed line telephone. Um, I do a lot of exercise. Uh, um, I, I, I find there is so much in your brain that it's actually better processing it, doing other things. And it's just ridiculous to commit. You know, we, because what we're doing is invisible. Um, you know, we're, this is a, we're engaged in a thought activity yeah. and we're, we're, we're designed to kind of, justify ourselves like you know i i must be worth whatever i got paid because you know i spent 10 hours and i had all of these meetings and i traveled to china and i did this and i just made myself miserable well actually that's really not the answer um less i and I, that came from crispin you know it's like hey you know this this i can't go to the gym and get extra muscles it's in my brain right you know? right um so i just gotta i gotta pull back and um, so I do a lot of fun things, um, but that's you know when people say to me, "Where'd you get these ideas?" I, I can't tell you because you'd fire me. I get the ideas being on the beach. I get the right. idea of sailing. I get the idea of surfing. I get the idea, you know, being fake, fake Bono. You know, there's a, there's a bunch of guys out there fun thinking, "This is it. This is this is the next step for me. I'm going to go and convince investors that the more I surf, the better ideas I have." Yeah, takes a lot of guts, but you see, no, that's the right. point. That that's why it's actually it's it's a robust moat because like who's going to volunteer not to have an engagement with Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley? Yeah. Who's going to say, just don't call. 
So. But that, but that's that's being a contrarian. That's that's being a, a true contrarian, not just a contrarian for contrarian's sake and, and buying things that are on sale and selling things that everybody wants. That's that's a true contrarian. Mm. Um, okay, next one um, from a gentleman whose name is Ko. Now we can decide what we want, what that might stand for. Maybe it's a knockout punch. I don't know, but let's see. Um, hello, sir. Do you have any advice for someone trying to run a modest retail portfolio in this environment? Diversity, long, short, time frames, geography, any advice from you would be much appreciated. I know it's a completely different skill set, but uh, sure. I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that would love just an insight in what you might think about that. I, um, I, have, I have to say um, that, well, I, okay, let me count on my thoughts. I, I'm, I'm shouting internally, permanent portfolio. Yep. Um, you can buy a permanent portfolio ETF. Uh, permanent portfolio structure and it's either structured like um, just 25% of the capital each way which arguably would be a better bet than 25% of risk because mm -hmm. you'd end up with too much of an allocation towards uh, treasury bonds um, but I would say this is an environment just now you know that I would say in terms of the context of that that you know there's lots of good news you know the implications of this year's sustained and synchronized growth across the world is is good for you it's, it's really good you know, equities are going to keep performing i'd stay long you know it's good because you know my argument which again we could go off air and spend days on end i don't see interest rates rising abruptly this is just not a fed that's either sponsored by markets or has the inclination to disrupt anything and commodities picked up and i think they're now probably likely to trend higher with the renewed vigor and and good fortunes of the global economy. So that's a heck of a lot of good news. And you can buy an incredibly cheap ETF um, doing that doing that strategy. And I tell you, if you then go back and measure the performance of any of the PERM index of Bloomberg, P-E-R-M space index, um, you'll struggle to find a macro hedge fund which has yeah. beaten that index and i think for the next two years I, I i don't i don't really think anyone can can beat that just now that's a great answer to a good question all right last one um and this one fascinates me david g sent this one in uh how would you manage money differently if you had no outside investment and were only managing your own money um well i i spent a lot of time with raul on this um because he thinks you know that we're all busted because of, I mean, so, so to, to, and what he's right, we're, we're busted because um, we're hedge fund managers and that, that there's some secret magic portion <laughs> that if you're managing your own money, um, it's not true. So first of all, I would say that, and, and indeed my answer is, um, I wouldn't change anything. Um, you know, as I suggested when I was saying I was idiosyncratic, um, I reject being in the flow. I don't think there's any advantage. I reject um the flow of information. I think information is, has really lost its cachet because it's just so readily available. Um, and and so you know, as I say, I sit there um, and I I don't have it. You know, I could have all these investment banks calling me and giving me their expert opinion, and I, I decline it. If you're managing your own money at home, they're not calling you anyway. Yeah, okay, so right. I'm, I'm just point. the same. I've chosen to be a private investor. Um, but and and I disagree with Raoul in the sense that there's there's just some magic uh, that suddenly things change and there's less pressure. If your ambition is to make 
um, a decent return on your precious capital, um, you will be called upon to take uh, risks and, and potentially large and onerous risks, which could jeopardize your standard of living. Dep- it depends on your, your, your risk appetite and your, and your desire to make money. Um, and therefore, it just becomes really the same. This is, again, the, the, the Bible. And I'm St. Peter, St. Paul, and I've, I've told Jesus, you know, Jesus, you know, my God, you're God, you know. And, you know, before the sun comes up, I've, I've rejected that thesis three times. Um, I'm sure, you know, um, there'll be times when I'll have to take that Chinese position off just because, you know, I've been timed out, you know. You're God, but then I'm denying it. And, you know, I hear chickens crowing. I can hear chickens crowing on this question, so I better let it go. <laughs> All right. Well, that's, that's the end of it. We don't have any time for any more questions. I've got, I've got uh, 90-odd more that I could have gone through, but uh, we'll sure. save those for another time. What I will ask you to do, if you can, though, is uh, I'd love a question from you for my next guest next week, which is uh, the great Jim Rogers. So I want to put you on the spot and see if you can come up with a question for Jim. Oh, Jim. Um, I remember uh, meeting Jimmy, um, and I'd been invited to um, an after-conference party at a Russian oligarch's apartment overlooking Red Square. And at the room I had... Jimmy Rogers, uh, Nassim Taleb, and, and a few others. And Nassim Taleb, you know, uh, anyone who's met him, I mean, he's great fun, but he, he is stark raving bonkers. <laughs> um, and so he would come up to me and say, ah, and he, he puts on this French voice, ah, Oog Entry, ah. And then he said to me, who are you again? <laughs> like, uh, Hugh Andrew. And then I turn around and I'd be sitting with, with Jimmy and Jimmy would you get into pocket you get into his trouser pocket and he'd bring out a gold coin and be like, Oh gold, feel the gold, gold's going up, you should you should own gold. I'm like, Yeah, no, I get that, Jimmy. And then like five minutes later in another conversation, he'd go into his jacket pocket and he'd bring out, I don't know, a sachet of sugar. It's like, you should be buying sugar. And so I was like, what have you got in that suit? I mean that's my kind of one of my memories of Jimmy. The question would be: So, what's in Jimmy's what's in Jimmy's trouser pocket today? <laughs> you, you can tack that on to the end. <laughs> oh, without context, possibly the greatest question that's ever been asked on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy, what's in your trousers? <laughs> much, as I'd lo- much as I would dearly love to, I, I just don't think I can ask him what's in his trousers. <laughs> I mean, I could. We could make it kind of topic, and I could say, "Hey, hey, Jimmy, you know, you you go back a few years. You must be about the only person that can remember that um, that labour market in 1964. Any thoughts you would share?" Okay, fantastic. There's one more thing we have to do, which is abandon you um, uh, and send you up to Mars on our friend Elon's rocket. And uh, as I said, in a blatant ripoff of Desert Island Disc, I'm going to I'm going to allow you to take a few things with you. Um, I'm going to allow you to take one book, one CD one film, one piece of technology, and I'm going to get somebody to uh, needlepoint a quote that you might want to take and frame and hang off on, on the wall of your little pod up in Mars. So um, I know this is uh, – anyone that's seen uh, uh, High Fidelity will understand the pain for every man going through these lists and trying to pick only one, but, but let's give it a go. We'll start with the quote. I was only kidding. <laughs> I didn't mean it when I said you could send me to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and that's that's. I was only kidding by Hugh Hendry. That's you're going to yeah. actually quote yourself. Why not? 
Oh, I, I, yeah, I, I constantly have to say, I, I constantly have engaged, I'm engaged in, a, in an internal dialogue with myself. So okay. I'd, be, I'd be reprimanding myself in bars going, really? I was uh, only kidding. Appropriate. All right, so uh, sticking backwards and reverse order, let's, uh, let's give you a piece of technology to take with you. Technology. Um, oh, do you know, I, um, I, I, I just purchased a, a month or so ago an electric skateboard. Um, <laughs> I would bring my electric skateboard. <laughs> I, I tell you, I, I'm willing to share the video of me um, skateboarding in Malibu. Oh yeah, now that that there are going to be plenty of people that want to see. We need to. We should make this pay per view though. This, don't give it away for free, Hugh. This is uh, okay. this this could make you some decent returns, I reckon. All right, uh, film. Now I'm going to give you one film to take up with you on DVD that you will have to watch innumerable well, times. I'm 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 going to shoot from the hip and just the first one that comes into my mind, and it's Angel Heart, uh, which was Mickey Rourke yeah. and Robert De Niro, and. I was obsessed by that movie, and therefore, just owing to that, I think it has to come. I, I even bought a brown suit because it was kind of reminiscent of what I had this big crush on Mickey Rock. Actually, he was just—he was the coolest, and and the, and and the story was so the, the twists and stuff. I, I just yeah, you know, um, I and yeah. You know, Louis Seifert. Louis Seifert. Yeah, Louis Lisa, Lisa Bonet, right? I think it was Lisa Bonet. Indeed, was the, yeah. yeah, no, yeah. I, I haven't seen that film since uh, since then. I have to look that up mm. again. All right, this is the tricky one for me. Uh, a CD. Now, Kyle, Kyle, Kyle went for George Strait's Greatest Hits, which was a bit obvious, and then hinted that he was torn between that and Bob Marley, um, which, which was an interesting, uh, interesting dichotomy. But which which CD would you take up with you? Well, I'm going, to pre- I'm going to be uncool, but I'm going to preface this with my first uh, single that I ever bought was um, Oliver's Army by, uh, by Elvis Costello. Uh, what's his name? Elvis Costello. Yeah. So as you're, you know, as a kind of 10-year-old, that's pretty cool. The album I take would be Joshua Tree, Magnificent. Now, is this, is, this a, is this a phono moment? Is this so that you can actually sing along to it in the shower? And- <laughs> it could be. <laughs> It's possible. I think oh, no, Red, Red Hill, Red Hill Mining Town, which the Edge wrote, and actually he wrote it about the uh, nineteen eighty four uh, miners' strike and the coal miners' strike in the UK. Um, is 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 my sing in the in the shower type song? There you go. I think I think we're going to file that one under too much information for now. <laughs> uh, okay, what, one more thing, and that's that's a book. I'm going to let you take one book up there with you. What's that going to be? Um. Well, it would probably be by Anne Rand because um, – so, yeah, I have to confess that whilst I've read the majority, um, I, I don't think I – I finished The Fountainhead. Yep. Um, but I many, think I many spent, didn't. <laughs> yeah, I sped right. But I, I, to my great, great shame, I didn't finish uh, the John Galt one. At the Shrugged. Um, at, at the Shrugged. And so I would take out the Shrugged so I could finish it. That, that would certainly take me a lifetime. I, I, I am I am just loving the confusion that you are sowing amongst all the gold bugs out there right now. They're listening to this and going, he hates gold, he's taken out the Shrugged. What what do I make of this? <laughs> uh, well, look, Hugh, that's, that's all. I mean, we've run out of time, unfortunately. Of course. Uh, I, 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 could, I could sit and talk to you all day and hopefully we'll get a chance to do this in person soon and, and, and pick up on a lot of that stuff we spoke about because it's, it's fascinating stuff, and, and I'm genuinely intrigued by by your process and your ability to change your mind when when others just, and me included, get so dogmatic. But um, but look, for the time being, uh, safe travels to the Caribbean. I hope uh, when you get there, you find um, 
you find the house isn't too badly damaged. And, uh, and thank you again, sincerely, for, for giving us so much of your time. It's been a real treat. Thank you. Thank you. Well, sadly, that wraps up this episode of Adventures in Finance. Uh, my thanks to Hugh for joining us. As I said, just a fantastic conversation with a hugely entertaining and wickedly smart guy. Before we leave you, uh, first of all, the usual legal disclaimer. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions, of course, of our contributors. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and please do trade responsibly. Next week, we'll be back with another star guest. uh, And as you've heard already, that's going to be the legendary Jim Rogers. Now, uh, if you have questions for Jim, please do send those in. Go to the Real Vision Twitter page that's at Real Vision, and you'll find a pinned tweet at the top which will give you the ability to send in all your questions. Uh, the ones we've had so far for both Kyle and Hugh have just been phenomenal, so keep up that high standard. And again, my apologies that we only get a chance to read a few of them out, um, but please don't let that discourage you from sending them in. Uh, one more quick reminder if you haven't listened to the, uh, the podcast last week with Kyle, do check that out. And if you want a chance to watch him talk to Raoul, then visit uh, well, here we go again with that, that URL rvtv.io forward slash kyle bass interview and of course aside from questions for jim rogers if you have an interesting question about this week's show or anything else you've heard on adventures in finance then we'd love to hear from you so please send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com if you enjoyed what you heard this week then please subscribe on itunes and i'm going to ask you to leave a review again for whatever reason that review thing i just don't understand it makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside warm and fuzzy what better reason do you need Keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes, of course. Please follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. You'll also find us on Facebook and LinkedIn if you search for Real Vision. And you can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. And you can follow me at AIF James. Um, I'm up to 25 followers now. 25 yeah. followers. Oh. 25 poor, disillusioned people out there yeah. in the world. Trouble is now I feel pressure. Well, the pressure's on. The pressure's on. You've got to raise your game. That's it from us for now. We will see you back here next week with Jim Rogers. Thanks for listening. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.